Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate is joined by author Joel Selvin to discuss his book, Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise. They'll talk about Jan and Dean, the Mamas and the Papas, and more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Joel Selvin author of Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise. Joel, welcome to the show. Good to be here. And so this book is fascinating. You take a good two dozen characters who all graduated from one of five Los Angeles high schools around 1958 and postulate that these characters not only pulled the center of the music industry's gravity from New York to L.A., 3,000 miles, but created the modern California myth of fun in the sun, fast cars, rock and roll, kind of the last most perfect flowering of the American dream. How did that happen? How did that happen? Goodness. Well, uh, it, it, it strikes me that all of this took place at a kind of mystical and magical convergence of time, place, and people. And when we're talking about the university high school class of 1958, these are some of the most privileged young people you could imagine. They grew up in the post-war prosperity that their parents had struggled through the Depression and World War to create, and they were living on this remote part of the United States before jet travel, California was really like another place uh, far away from anything that mattered in the worlds of commerce and industry. And, and they, these young people there, they, they saw life without limits and, and, and everything was possible. And Holly, uh, Hollywood was still a small town. Uh, Los Angeles was a, a bunch of villages scattered across 500 square miles. There's no smog. There's no freeways. But long boulevards and cars were an integral part of that life. So were the beaches. And at University High, the beach was 10 minutes away after school. And these kids all drove themselves to school. So this whole thing starts in the shower room at after football practice with a bunch of guys singing doo-wop songs. And it goes from that germ to uh, through a pathway that eventually leads to Brian Wilson making good vibrations, arguably the greatest record pop music record ever. It's quite a narrative arc to work with. And those guys in the shower you were talking about were Jan Barry and Dean Torrance, who go on to become Jan and Dean. But before they do that, Jan actually has his first commercial record success as Jan and Arnie. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, he was a senior in high school, and they recorded it in his garage. Uh, I mean, the, the the phrase garage rock has become a cliche, of course. Uh, this is the real thing. Uh, he converted his father's garage into sort of a music studio, and his father, who was the right-hand man to Howard Hughes, talk about a privileged youth, purchased a couple of old webcore tape recorders, which were high-end gear at that point in 1958, from his boss. So on tape recorders that had been owned by Howard Hughes, Jan Berry and some of his high school buddies goofed around and experimented and used that garage as a laboratory until they came out with this tape that a professional record producer heard and said, wow, wait a minute. Now, keep in mind that rock and roll was such a fresh uh, uh, movement in 1958 that Really, the people in the record industry didn't understand it. It's, they knew it was happening, and they knew that the the youth of America were resonating to this, but they didn't. They weren't inside the music, so one that 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 left the door open for people that were 17 years old to to get the ear of record companies and and get on the charts, which is what happened. Arnie was another member of the car club, the Barons, that Jan belonged to at University High. Uh, I don't think Arnie was on the football team, but he he was Arnold Ginsberg, and 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 uh, although Dean was all part of the original recordings of that, he had gone off to do his military service, and so when the professional record producer walked in, Jan, who was always ambitious and driven, made it Jan and Arnie. And that happened for about six months or so. I mean, they had a big hit record. They did American Bandstand. They went to New York and played gigs with uh, doo-wop groups that they admired and uh, played a big concert at the Hollywood Bowl. But Arnie had other plans, and he, and, he, and he was not smitten with show business. I mean, and this was something I knew, but it really brought home something that's easy to forget. Like, I always think of Jan and Dean as part of the surf rock explosion of the early 60s. But Jan Barry is a first-generation white rock and roller, maybe second generation. He's right in there with Ricky Nelson and, you know, shortly behind Buddy Holly and, and, and ahead of the Philadelphia wave of Frankie Avalon and everything else. And... I also didn't think of Jan Barry as somebody who's drinking from the source, but this is a kid who's listening to black rock and roll on the radio. People like Hunter Hancock on KVFD, Johnny Otis is on the radio. These kids are going to the source. And you tell stories about Jan Barry partying with Bobby Freeman right as yeah. his first hit is coming out, and they're interacting as peers. I really thought that was interesting. Oh, I love that scene. Uh, yes, a June night, school's out that afternoon, not that Jan noticed. He barely attended class. <laughs> uh, and uh, Jan and Arnie are on the charts uh, in the top ten, and they, they do their first concert. Uh, and, and, and Bobby Freeman, who is, uh, has his 18th birthday that night, is doing a, his first big concert in Los Angeles, and his record, Do You Want to Dance, is also on the top ten. A couple of 18-year-olds. Right. And that's what this music was at that. And they knew Freeman through uh, a, a, a Los Angeles based doo-wop group, one of whose members was uh, Ralph Mathis, Johnny Mathis's brother. And he knew Freeman from San Francisco. They were both from San Francisco. 
So uh, yeah, the 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 Barons have a big party to celebrate the Jan and Arnie uh, uh, concert up at uh, uh, Loma Linda, the uh, Berry House on the top of Bel Air Hills, and they invite all the Ambers. That was Mathis's. Um, doo-wop group and and bobby freeman and his crowd up to uh you know party and 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 there were a bunch of people that remember that party and and uh bobby freeman had a acetate of his new record jenny uh, betty lou's got a new pair of shoes and that you know that got played and 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 you know sound checked by everybody and it was like a, it was like a summit meeting for 18 year olds and it, was, it must have been a beautiful moment yeah, it's a really cool anecdote. And, and Jim Barry's not the only L- Los Angelino that's that's penetrating the charts at this point. Fairfax High's Phil Spector cuts a number one hit with his group, the Teddy Bears. And then there's a 15-year-old that goes in the same high school as Janet, University High, Bruce Johnson, who's already playing with a guy named Kip Tyler, who's um, headlining at El Monte or, or is providing the backing band at Hel Monte for people like Richie Valens and all these, you know, the the Penguins who did Earth Angel and all these great first generation LA rock and rollers. And let's go ahead and hear Kip Tyler, She's My Witch with Bruce Johnson. Tyler doing She's My Witch with a young, a very young Bruce Johnson backing him on keyboards. And you tell this story that connects so many dots in the book of the time that Bruce Johnson, his friend Sandy Denny, who's going to become the most famous drummer of this first rock and roll era, and they go and meet John Dolphin, who's a local impresario, to talk about making some records, and things go horribly wrong. What happened? Yeah, uh, Dolphin was the uh, owner of uh, the leading record store in South Central Los Angeles. It was a community center for the African-American community. And he had a bunch of labels with uh, uh, R&B records that he ran, uh, you know, some, some pretty good-sized records. Uh, Ernie Freeman's Jivin' Round was big for him. Uh, he saw uh, uh, Bruce Johnston and Sandy Nelson and Dave Shostak uh, the the group that out of University High they called themselves the Sleepwalkers in the studio the first day they went into the studio like Bruce wanted to see you know what it was like to record and in they go uh, typical rich kid stunt right I mean poor kids weren't going to rent in time in yeah. radio recorders and Dolphin who was like aware that white kids were coming into his record store and buying records that had been a phenomenon that had been going on for a little while now but you know he saw these guys and thought mm, you know maybe there's something here why don't you why don't you boys come down and, and, and let's talk about this so they go down to his office in downtown uh, uh, Los Angeles and as they're trying to get in the front door, uh, which is locked, and they have to phone in to get, you know, get, we're outside waiting for you, okay. A singer, agitated, uh, 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 he's a clerk somewhere at uh, L.A. airport, bursts in at the same time they do and demands the money he thinks Dolphin knows him, that, uh, and, and it just overheats right away. And the singer pulls out a gun and pumps five pills into Dolphin. 
I mean, one of them ricochets and, and gets into the uh, and grazes the leg of one of the kids that's uh, from the Sleepwalkers, and uh, every uh, Sandy Nelson just bursts out of the into the sidewalk, spilling his Coca Cola, and uh, Bruce Johnston actually has to pick Dolphin up off the heater that he's fallen on, and 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 lay him out on the floor, and says, "You know, are you all right, Mr. Dolphin?" Mr. Dolphin was not all right. Mr. Dolphin was dead, wow. and the singer Percy Ivy just was collapsed there crying and waiting for the cops to come and and Johnston was tr- talking to him and interviewing this sense and 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 I mean all these guys remember this pretty vividly as you might imagine that was their first day in the record business <laughs> it's it's quite an initiation and and it's to me just a perfect sort of passing of the torch because you know I've talked to RJ Smith and about the LA scene in the 40s and the 50s and and it's such a pivotal scene to the development of R&B but when you think of LA in the 60s it's a very white scene and of course the death of Sam Cooke tragically in 1964 has an enormous about to do with that if he had stayed you know in LA and and active and living he would have black music would have been a massive force and and LA of the era, but it's not. And so we think of this as this lily white era, but it's important, I think, to remember that torch torch passing moment. But it's funny that it doesn't take the industry any time at all to start picking the talent out of this little combo. Like Steve Douglas gets picked, called up basically by Dwayne Eddy, who's being produced by a guy named Lee Hazelwood, who's going to come into the story later. And, you know, Bruce Johnson becomes part of Kip Tyler's backing band. He's playing at El Monte that, you know, Frank Zappa would later immortalize in his first song, Memories of El Monte. And there's this lull, you know, the famous interregnum of of after the music died and, you know, L.A.'s Richie Valens dies in a plane crash, Eddie Cochran dies in, in a car wreck in England. And Jan and Arnie have their little moment in the sun, but then Dean comes back and they have some hits and there's another guy they go to high school with who's not one of the cool kids, who's not one of the cool jocks. And he introduces or he he tells a guy named Lou Adler about this Jan and Dean combo. And I'm talking about Kim Fowley, who's going to be on the scene for, you know, he's going to be introducing the Runaways in the 70s. Big player, has a big hit with Ali Oop. But what happens? Does it help his career out when he introduces Lou Adler and Jan and Dean? Oh, Fowley is, is is such a classic Hollywood uh, character, uh, you know, and and he's full Hollywood spawn. His father was in a hundred movies, and you've never heard of him, you know. Uh, his mother opted out after a, a, a brief uh, uh, acting career, and she married well. You know, that's another sort of Hollywood strategy. But uh, Fowley himself couldn't sing, couldn't write. Couldn't play an instrument, couldn't really produce records, but, you know, he had a career nonetheless by finding associations with people who could and co-producing, co-writing, all that. And never really had a big, massive success, uh, but managed to just sort of stay in the game for, you know, really all his life. In the early days, as a high school student, he was kind of embittered and 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 resentful. Uh, like you said, he wasn't the jock type. He didn't get to date the girls he wanted to. He was kind of alienated and rejected by, uh, you know, the popular boys like the Barons that Jan and Dean ran with. So, uh, yeah, uh, he turned Lou Adler, 
who he was trying to impress on to Jan and Dean. He called them blonde-haired Everly brothers. Nadler and his partner, Herb Alpert, went on to not only manage Jan and Dean, but got, got a top 10 hit out of them with baby talk right off the bat. And Fowley thought this was going to be his entrance to music business. But, of course, Adler just pretended he never met the guy. Uh, after in another classic Hollywood move, and that sets up a kind of lifelong uh, antagonistic relationship where uh, Fowley does something, and Adler just stops him and takes away, you know, covers his hit alley oop, or uh, rewrites one of his songs and publishes himself. And of course, the final blow is when he takes the singing group that Fowley had found away from him that becomes the Mamas and Papas. Yeah, it's 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 a painful series of dunks uh, being played on Kim Fowley, except Kim Fowley's the furthest thing from a sympathetic character. So <laughs> it kind yeah, of there he is at the end of the book in that hotel suite with his high school buddy Bruce Johnston playing pet sounds to the Beatles. Yeah, he's he's definitely a connector, somebody who's involved in some some heavy, heavy scenes. But let's go back a little bit to Sandy Nelson, because he's somebody who's totally overlooked these days. But there for a hot minute, maybe 18 months in the early 60s, he's the biggest drumming star, not just in rock and roll, but in the history of rock and roll. I can't even think of anybody since then who's had – you know, we've got your Keith Moons and your John Bonhams, et cetera. But Sandy Nelson had his own records under his own name. And let's hear one of them. This is Let There Be Drums by Sandy Nelson. Sandy Nelson's Let There Be Drums. Tell us how this happened. How did this kid go from being, you know, part of Bruce Johnston's band in high school to suddenly being a big star? And then why did he fade so fast? Uh, yeah, Sandy uh, was the first breakout star of University High School. And like you said, he was the first star rock and roll drummer. And that, that fluky 1959 hit, Teen Beat, which Bruce Johnson's also playing on, uh, was a, 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 an instrumental born of Sandy's unique uh, uh, um, personality, I guess. I mean, he is a goofy guy and, 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 and saw things in, in, in certain ways. Uh, he could play piano, but drums were his passion, and and he had always had the idea that drums could make a record without additional accompaniment. Now there is other instruments on Teen Beat, but it's essentially a drum feature single, and as such, it was the first kind of record like that to really break through. Although you know, Cozy uh, Cole had Topsy Part One and Part Two. Uh, just about the same, about a year before, uh, and he was, he was Count Basie drummer, and that was 
was kind of a drum solo feature, but but Sandy's record was really just a a, a major hit and a, a sound. Uh, he was able to be um, hijacked by uh, another record company because the independent label that put out that first record didn't sign him to a deal. So that's all they got was that one single. And the other label, Imperial Records, had a very active A&R department uh, that had worked with a lot of R&B artists, like, for instance, Fats Domino. And they saw Sandy in a certain light, and they started producing a series of albums that they could market. They were kind of easy listening, sort of ta- uh, uh, cover versions of existing hits of, of well-known repertoire. But as you assess, you know, it, it really didn't last. Right, that just didn't work right away until "Let There Be Drums" was the second single. And that's another Sandy Nelson collaboration with Richie Podolor, who is a guitar player who would be sort of very important underneath the scene, uh, underneath you know, beyond the the scrims. Uh, uh, behind the scenes in 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 the Los Angeles rock scene for many years, uh, and Podlor was quite a talent. So let there be drums. Put second top ten hit. Sandy's back on top and really galvanized his position as rock and roll drummer. Two years later, he was dealing with a serious uh, uh, disability, a leg amputation following a motorcycle crash. He drove his motorcycle, his Honda 55, right into a school bus in the Hollywood Hills and went under the tires and lost his leg in the process. And, you know, as a drummer, that's, you know, one-fourth of your instrument right there. So he had to kind of rebuild his whole life and recreate, you know, drum playing for himself. And as a matter of fact, accomplished that and started recording again and got back on the charts, although not in any real meaningful way. But, you know, when you've overcome that kind of adversity, just being able to, like, play drums again was a major accomplishment. And Sandy made records for a long, long time. Yeah, and this theme of of car wrecks and disaster is gonna is gonna recur in the story. We'll come back to that. But around the same time, a little later, Phil Spector, who's moved off to New York, he's followed his fellow Los Angelinos, Lieber and Stoller, to the East Coast, and he's you know been an understudy to them. He's produced hits on Vinny King and others. And the Crystals, and then he comes back to L.A. And Steve Douglas, who's been the sax player with Bruce Johnston and then Dwayne Eddy, puts together this team of session guys for Phil that coalesce. They're called the B-team in their own era. We know them now as the Wrecking Crew, and they go on to play on dozens of records by characters we'll talk about in the stories. They play in the Beach Boys' later records. They play with the Mamas and the Papas, et cetera, et cetera. And... Bruce Johnston himself meets up with another kid who went to Beverly Hills High rather than University High, so somebody even higher on the privilege ladder. And I'm talking about Doris Day's son, Terry Melcher. Tell us about Bruce and Terry and their whole partnership, the production team, and some of the stuff they did. Well, Terry Melcher started out thinking he might want to be a singer. But he quickly decided that he would rather be the guy behind the scenes who made the records. And because his mother was one of Columbia Records' top-selling artists and a fairly substantial stockholder, he was quickly channeled into a kind of management training program to get him behind the desk uh, making records. And Columbia Records in 1963 
was way behind the eight ball. They didn't really have any any current top 40 hits. They had old-time pop music, Johnny Mathis, Mitch Miller, that kind of stuff. So the idea of a young 23-year-old record producer appealed to some of the people in the East Coast that put him up in Hollywood and, and, and let him loose to try and make hit records. And one of the first things he did was he signed Bruce Johnston, who he knew vaguely, but who, who'd had a regional hit with Do the Surfers Stomp. And and Melcher saw from his Los Angeles viewpoint that this surf thing was going to be have a future in the music business real soon, and he wanted in on it. So he signed the, the guy that had the regional hit, and Bruce has a tremendous effect on him. Uh, they just formed a friendship. They formed a partnership. Uh, Bruce brought Terry out of his shell as a, as a musician, as a singer. And, uh, Terry gave Bruce a job at Columbia records in the A&R department. So suddenly they're both going down sunset, uh, uh, Columbia records every day, wearing coats and ties and making rock and roll records. And the, Terry had success with a, a group called the Rip Chords. They came back in for a second uh, 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 follow-up single, and the guys really couldn't, in the Rip Chords, really couldn't quite get their heads around the material. So Bruce and Terry just sang the whole thing themselves. And uh, Hey Little Cobra was a huge hit for the Rip Chords, even though they never sang a note on it. And that was kind of their modus operandi while they worked together. Was uh, did what they did whatever parts they wanted to do, whatever they needed to do, and produced uh, sort of Beach Boys sound alike records for a couple of years at Columbia. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want you to tell us about how Jan Barry recruited another surf artiste. I'm talking about Brian Wilson to help him out on the second wave of Jan and Dean records. And so, yeah, so Brian Wilson is a kid from Hawthorne High, which is a much less glamorous high school than, than the ones we've been talking about, but still, in the relative scheme of things, pretty privileged. He, in the wake of Dick Dale's success with Miser Lou and other surf instrumentals and the ventures, of course, invents a vocal form of surf music with his brothers with their hits Surf and then Surf City. And Jan and Dean discover them very quickly when they play a gig together at a high school gym. And Jan takes Brian under his wing as a producer. And this is, an, again, something I knew but ignored. Like you always think of Pete, Phil Spector as the guy who mentored Brian Wilson and taught him how to work in the studio. But really, it was Jan Barry that taught him the nuts and bolts of record production. Well, when Jan Barry met Brian Wilson, Brian had made two or three records, singles in his career. And Jan was couple dozen records into his career. He'd been doing it for four years or more and was what passed for a veteran on the rock and roll scene. Uh, and furthermore, uh, the first Beach Boys record, Surfing, uh, that was a, a Jan and Dean knockoff. That, that was a song that was done in the Jan and Dean style. Uh, the, the, the distributor of the record recognized it as that Jan and Dean certainly recognized it as that. And Brian, uh, when pressed would tell you it is too. It's kind of a riff on, on the 1959 hit baby talk, you know, uh, anyway, uh, 
once they met, uh, Brian was as excited to meet Jan as could be. And Jan, who's always, you know, had wheels within wheels, immediately convinced Brian and the Beach Boys to back him and uh, Dean on some album tracks doing Brian's songs, Surfing, Surfing USA, uh, or not Surfing USA, but Surfing Safari. And uh, then they started writing songs together, and Jan showed Brian this line that he'd written, Two Girls for Every Boy, and Jan knew what to do with that. Got a couple of other collaborators in. They polished up this song, and then he brought Brian with him into the studio and showed Brian how to cut uh, harmony vocals, how to stack them, how to use session musicians. And Brian played and sang on that record as much as he did any Beach Boys record. Uh, so did a couple of Latinos that, that, that went to University High with Jan that, that performed under the name of the Gents. I mean, the only person that didn't sing on that Surf City was Dean. Uh, and and that's began a collaborative career for Brian and Jan. I mean, for you know a number of years they worked together on each other's records, or certainly the Jan and Dean records. I mean, Brian Wilson was the instigator who started the, to write uh, Dead Man's Curve. Yeah, which is goes on to become a very prophetic song in Jan Barry's life. Crucial. Yeah, he wrote his own story there, didn't he? Uh, and and it's eerie how uh, 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 how many echoes of that record are in the uh, actual car crash that uh, uh, caused him, uh, you know, really ended his career. It's funny, and for me as a Gen Xer, as a taught in the '70s, I first learned about Jan and Dean and the whole story through an ABC movie of the week. I think it was ABC called mm-hmm. Dead Man's Curve, and. At the same venue, I learned about Charles Manson, who, of course, was connected to the Beach Boys and Terry Meltzer intimately with his ABC movie of the week. So it was uh, had a big impact that this negative side of the California dream is kind of omnipresent through the story. And another character who went to the same high school was Nancy Sinatra, and she's trying to get her feet on the ground as a performer. She knows she wants to be a performer, but she hasn't found the right thing yet. And um, ultimately, it's going to hook up with Lee Hazelwood. But Dean Torrance has this really bizarre role in the Sinatra family story. What is it, and how did he get mixed up in it? Yeah, that is certainly true. Um, Dean uh, had a close relationship with a University High uh, friend named Barry Keenan. And, And like I said, in those days, Los Angeles was a small town, and, and, and these were very much, you know, hometown high school guys. You know, they may have records on the charts. They may be going to college or whatever, but, you know, your high school buddies are your high school buddies. And, and Keenan had been a stockbroker. He ran in some hard times, and he decided that the plan that would save his situation was kidnapping Frank Sinatra, Jr. <laughs> and he approaches Dean with the idea. I mean, it's plotted out in a in a binder form. He's got a business plan made up. And and Dean I don't think took it that seriously, but he financed the deal. And then came up with some more money later. And then when it happened, the uh Barry Keenan, the kidnapper, stuffed about $65,000 in a paper bag and left it in Dean's uh, bathroom at his parents' home where Dean's lived with his parents all through this. Uh, so they had to hide that money and give it back and, and you know somehow disassociate from this 
bungled kidnapping. This, you know, talk about the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I mean, these guys kidnapped uh, uh, Frank Sinatra Jr. in Tahoe and didn't have enough gas money to get back to Los Angeles. They had to get it. They, they had to take the twenty dollars out of Sin- the, the kidnapped victim's pocket to buy gas. So I mean, but that's just the beginning. How stupid this was. You know, they buy the book, read the details. Uh, I do not know and cannot explain why Dean Torrance was not indicted and charged uh, as an accessory to this kidnapping. There were three people that went to jail for for it, uh, and uh, Dean testified, and, and, and his first time on the stand, he lied about what he was involved. He had to come back and correct himself, as they say, uh, because there was too much hard evidence that, to, that would, you know. So I don't know. I can't explain it. But, you know, uh, uh, he's, he's lived a very lucky life. Indeed. And, you know, there was rumors that continue to this day that, that there was an inside deal that Frank Sinatra Jr. had cooperated and, and some of the. So we got to stop that right there, because that was a defense that was promulgated by some very unethical defense attorneys and who were later not just chastised, but were actually had their licenses suspended for creating such a fiction. And it is a total fiction, and it has stuck to poor Frank Jr. all the rest of his life that he that it was a career publicity stunt. It was anything but. It was this stupid, lame-brained scheme by by a uh, probably sociopathic guy named Barry Keenan, and that's what it was. What that 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 rumor that that was strictly a, a very unethical defense uh, uh, argument. Yeah, and I'm glad you squashed that because that's something that's haunted Frank Jr. Like you said, he can't for the rest shake of- it. He's been dead for years, and here you are bringing it up now. I mean, it, it, it is just you know stuck to him like uh, glue. Yeah, it's it's reminiscent of some of the slanders that Elvis Presley were racist that that keep popping up and and are totally uh, canards and untrue. But you know that's the old Mark Twain thing about the lie going around the country while the truth's still getting its boots on. But around the same time, there's there's so much going on. You get so much Mark of it in the Twain, book. Mark Twain, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even we didn't even get to the story of how Jan and Dean's second song, Heart and Soul, actually broke up the Herb Alpert Lou Adler partnership because Herb Alpert just could not deal with it. <laughs> Like he's trying to produce his. Oh, isn't that great? Like... Artistic integrity is a rare event in my book, uh, and uh, it was more like the sixth, seventh uh, uh, Jan and Dean record. They'd they'd had a run uh, of of sort of mid to low chart records, and but they the, their run had come to an end, and they needed another hit. And and for some reason, uh, Jan got in his head that a, that a sort of doo wopped up uh, version of the old Chestnut Heart and Soul would 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 make it happen. And uh, Adler was going along with it, but they had um, to leave town, uh, do some gig or something. And and Adler left her his partner in charge of like cutting the track at the studio that 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 weekend. They didn't have a lot of dough. They'd run out of money, and this was kind of the last session they could afford. And Albert gets in the studio, and he just can't bring himself to do something this stupid, this square, this so unhip. 
And so he, he turned, he, he cut one of his like jazz instrumentals instead of the, instead of heart and soul, you know, it's like <laughs> that was it. Adler came back in town, found out what they'd done. And Alpert, who was obviously sort of sick of the Jan and Dean thing, uh, they split up the assets and Adler took the Jan and Dean management contract and Herb Alpert took the tape recorder and he went and stuck it in his garage. And that was the tape recorder he recorded Lonely Bull on. So everything worked out. Indeed, and forms A&M Records and goes on. And meanwhile, Lou discovers a guy playing uh, in downtown L.A., Johnny Rivers, and, and hooks him up with the gig that becomes the famous Whiskey A Go-Go stand and uh, cuts a series of live records on Johnny Rivers based on Trini Lopez's previous live album that had been a big hit in 1963. And I want to introduce another character. I want to play the song that he wrote for Johnny Rivers, and then we'll talk a little bit about P.F. Sloan when we come back. This is Johnny Rig Rivers doing Secret Agent Man. There's a man who leads a life of danger To everyone he meets there's a stranger With every move he makes Another chance he takes Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow Secret. That was Johnny Rivers' version of P.F. Sloan's Secret Agent Man. And so Phil Sloan is another one of these kids going to these the same high school. And he has this sort of epiphany in the mid-60s and kind of epitomizes the switch from surf rock to folk rock that happens. He goes from Phil Sloan to P.F. Sloan, writes this knockoff of a Bob Dylan song called Eve of Destruction that becomes one of the biggest hits of the era. Yeah, Phil Sloan's another uh, classic Hollywood kid going to Fairfax High. Made his first record when he was 16 years old. I mean, it was always rock and roll that was the, the, the driving force in Phil's life. And uh, the, came to the attention of Lou Adler, who, who lashed him to a songwriting partner named Steve Barry. A little bit more square, a little bit more... Uh, uh, you know, uh, steady uh, kind of personality, and they started uh, turning out these kind of lame Elvis-like uh, records with a Canadian singer named Terry Black, uh, all under Adler's aegis over his new Ode Records and 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 um, offices and partnership, just on his own for the first time, really. And um, yeah, Phil. Got uh, bringing it all back home, an advanced copy that Adler gave him. I think Melcher gave it to Adler, and it just transformed him overnight. And he came back with five songs that 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 he just spit out in a creative, uh, you know, moment. And Adler didn't really like them, and Steve Barry thought they were terrible. Uh, but Adler ran across. Barry McGuire uh, at a nightclub in, at a Birds uh, uh, performance, and and was refreshed. Uh, 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 his recollection was refreshed of uh, McGuire's lead vocal on the new Christy Minstrels hit "Green Green," a very gravelly voice, very memorable. And he brought McGuire over to Ode Records to see what they could do. 
and sent him down the hall to Phil Sloan. Phil played him a bunch of songs, and, and, and McGuire didn't particularly care for Eva Destruction, but there was one he did like. They went in the studio. They cut the two that McGuire liked. There was about 10 minutes left. So real quick, they mapped out a version of this Eva Destruction and did it. And and at the time, when it went down, the the, the, the musicians on the session sort of went, huh, you know, that that's something a little different. What happened next is that uh, that was on a Friday, and uh, over the weekend, uh, one of Adler's radio promo guys got a hold of an acetate out of the session and played it for the big uh, uh, the program director at KRLA, who said, wow, this is a hit. I'm going to go on it Monday morning if you have records in the market. So that's sort of like, you know, like, uh, you know, pressed everybody's hand, like, oh, I guess we'll force everybody's hand. There we are. This is coming out. Because, I mean, it was just done, knocked off in a minute, and, and McGuire had wanted to do his vocal over. There's a couple mistakes, and nope, it's going, it, it went out. And it was a number one record, international hit. And it was the kind of, of, of massive record that Lou Adler had never been a sta- uh, uh, associated with before. It was really like the, the trifecta. Uh, publisher, producer, and record company of an international number one hit. Wow, you know. Welcome yeah, to the record business. It turned him into a made man. And previously, I mean, I guess his biggest thing had been carrying Sam Sam Cooke's briefcase around for a couple of years. But there's a lot of transitions going on through this period. You mentioned the Birds. They have their massive hit with another with a Dylan song, Mr. Tambourine Man. And Terry Melcher produces that for Columbia Records. And, uh, you know, that makes his reputation and kind of overshadows the earlier stuff he had done with the Rip Chords and Bruce and Terry. Bruce Johnston joins the Beach Boys, at least in their touring group, as, as a replacement for Glenn Campbell, who had replaced Brian Wilson. But then he becomes an integral part of their recording group as well. And Phil Spector's, you know, has his massive run with the Righteous Brothers and then sort of curdles into this paranoia and, and obsession and has his last great attempt to make a record with with Ike and Tina Turner, River Deep Mountain High. That flops. Phil, you know, it's a big hit in England, but Phil doesn't care about that. He retreats to his mansion. And so there's sort of this theme of this is the, the, the point in the narrative arc when, when these guys come down to earth. And Jan Barry, who's a much more creative person than I really had realized before I read this book. But, I mean, he's doing all kinds of interesting things with, with you know, vocal arrangements and classical music pastiches. And, and he's even trying to adapt to the folk rock political movement, but in this totally hardcore right-wing way. And for a guy who's a draft dodger... <laughs> It's just that wasn't lost on Dean either. He thought that there was a certain element of of hypocrisy in 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 the song Universal Coward, uh, given that you know Jan was very concerned about uh, his draft status at that point. Yeah, even going to medical school, and I don't know that that's the only reason he was going to medical school, but it was certainly a convenient thing. And then Nancy Sinatra meets this guy, Lee Hazelwood, who's best known up to this point for producing Dwayne Eddy's records, and he figures out how to cut a hit on Nancy Sinatra. Well, he wasn't impressed with who her father was. 
he, he saw her uh, in an entirely different light. All the other producers had been very much awed by the uh, the shadow of, of of her father's enormous success over her career. I mean, and also, I think they were unwilling to um, see her as a as a woman, you know, as a grown woman. I think they infantilized her uh, again uh, out of like didn't want they didn't want to sexualize Frank Sinatra's daughter. Uh, so she was given these really stupid, sexless, ingenue roles in the movie, the uh, bubblegum records that she cut over at, at her father's record company reprise were pretty much the same thing. They were done by this guy, Tuzi Camarada, who was the Disney music director, and he was responsible for the Annette hits. And the Nancy Sinatra records were very much cut from the same cloth as the Annette Funicello records until she met Hazelwood, who was a curmudgeon, a, a, a a crusty uh, uh, scotch-drinking uh, Texan who uh, really didn't have the same kind of fix on Hollywood values as as, as most people. Uh, in fact, he was kind of sick of Hollywood, and he'd just done a bunch of records with Dino, Desi, and Billy, who were, you know, two of them were uh, Desi Arnaz's kid and Dean Martin's kid, and along with Billy Hinchy, their buddy from school. And he was kind of sick of celebrity offspring when he was in it, when it was he was asked to take a meeting with Nancy Sinatra and he was pretty cynical about the whole project and I think the boot song was kind of sort of a, a cynical ploy to not get the gig he, he he demoed the song for her when he went and visited her over at uh, her dad's house and uh, I think you know there's him sort of saying you know you, you know you don't want to play with me and she did uh, and he treated her like a grown woman. Uh, she was married and divorced at that time. She, he didn't see that she should play the like you know teenage virgin anymore. Uh, and uh, got her on the charts at sort of the last moment in her life where she would have a chance to make another record. And then came up with this boot song, which is the Wrecking Crew at their finest, and uh, him at his his greatest. And and the, it's such an important record. I can't believe that. Nancy Sinatra is as absent from the accounts of the history of rock and roll as she is. It's a huge record, not just for Nancy Sinatra, but for women in general. And the whole attitude it expresses and the, the whole story behind the record and Nancy's whole story all parallels the history of, of, of feminism at that point. It's just w women trying to establish independent identities, trying to be something, carve out a space for themselves besides being someone's girlfriend or wife and, and, and have this identity. And that's what Boots was all about for Nancy. And that's what the song is all about. That's why it resonates through the years. Yeah, and they go on to make a string of really fun albums, and Lee Hazelwood has a whole discography that anybody who's into any kind of cult music should or country should really dive into. These are – this is – there's some serious rock and roll happening with those two. And and then at the same time in your narrative, there's another character who goes from being kind of a background character, although obviously key source, and suddenly she's in the foreground. And this is Jill Gibson, who's Jan Berry's partner. She's a beautiful young woman who sort of drifts into a modeling career just because she's in L.A. and she's beautiful and, and somebody seizes her, but she's not into that. She wants to be a more active creator. She's a musician and a photographer. And when Jan Berry has his infamous wreck, and they've already broken up because – and ironically – sorry to spoil this, but it's just too good. 
she catches him in their house with two women at the same time, just like in um, Surf City, you know, two two girls for every boy. <laughs> he's, he's trying to hook it up right under his, his old lady's nose, blows it. She throws him out. Then he has this car wreck, does not remember that they've broken up and is, and is asking for her. She comes, sits by his side, but she's sitting with Lou Adler, his manager and producer and partner, and they start to have a relationship, and Lou Adler hooks her up with this unusual career opportunity. And let's hear a song from the group that she actually gets to be in for a little while. And this is the Mamas and the Papas doing No Salt on Her Tail, one of John Phillips's classic autobiographical soap opera songs. The mom and the mamas and the papas doing no salt on her tail, which is on the section. I think that's one of the songs Jill sings on. That was one of my. That's why I picked it. It's one of my guesses, and it's so. Yeah, I think that. I think that's one of the ones. Of course, her vocals are all mixed in with with uh, Michelle's, and 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 nobody can pick them apart. There's there's internet forums devoted to the topic. Uh, But yeah, she was uh, all over tracks on that second album, and they didn't take them off. Yeah, although they did take her picture off the cover and erased her from the credits. And this song is just classic because it's it's John Phillips sort of at the height of 60s free love dude hypocrisy, where he's writing this song about how he's letting his woman go free. But what had happened was they break up. You know, she has her infamous affair with with uh, Denny Dougherty, the lead singer for the Mamas and the Papas. They break up. They keep the partnership together. He's dating other people. She's dating other people. But when her beau of the moment, Gene Clark, formerly of the Birds, shows up at the front row of one of their gigs in a bright red suit, John Phillips freaks out, fires her on the spot, and... Lou Adler, who's fallen in love with Jill Gibson in Jane Berry's hospital room, recruits Gibson to be in the Mamas and the Papas for a hot minute. Yeah, a couple of uh, exciting months. I mean, you know, Royal Albert Hall in London, hanging out with the Beatles, uh, uh, private jet travel. Uh, It wasn't a comfortable situation on stage. I think there's about four or five concerts where, you know, she had to endure the Where's Michelle shouts from the audience. And when they returned from the tour, Michelle is waiting on the tarmac for the jet, you know, and um, Jill was fired the next day. So it was really a short uh, but crucial interval. And the whole thing of Jill coming out of the background into the foreground in the in the final act is really important because again this is all like emblematic of what the roles were for women in 1965 and 66 and and someone who had this spirit to struggle against the uh, conformity and and the and the restrictions and and didn't see limits to her life the way that somebody else might have uh and refused to accept them so this is how they end up you, you know uh, it's emblematic of that all the way up to where her her boyfriend screws her over on the on the on the business end of the deal and just hangs her out to dry in the last moment. 
Yeah, that was a brutal, a brutal uh, final end of the story. But of course, this is the music industry, and that's how things are done. And you know, trust no one, especially not your boyfriend, who gets you. You know, I mean, I had heard her name. I knew the whole story of how she'd been replaced, <clears throat> how she had briefly replaced Michelle Phillips in the Mamas and the Papas. I did not have any idea that she was Jan Berry's longtime partner, and um, and it just really connects the dots. And the, another thing that you bring in to end the story is sort of the fall of Brian Wilson, and and he's had his whole arc of of boy genius making pop hits to boy genius making these you know artistic statements like California Girls that are still pop hits. Then he makes Pet Sounds, which is a hit in England, but not in the States. Everything's on the line. He's struggling to make his masterpiece, Good Vibrations. And he calls all of his friends in to meet him at the airport for this famous picture. Tell us about sort of that denouement of Brian Wilson in this era. Well, of course, the whole Brian Wilson story is is one of family and 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 dysfunction. Uh, his brothers were his bandmates. His cousin was the singer. His father was the manager. They had to fire him because he was so competitive with Brian, his son. And so Brian was not just only the goose that laid the golden egg that was breaking all these precedents and doing all this pioneering pop music. He also had to contend on a daily basis with this extraordinary family drama, and he really wasn't up to it. Uh, And before, you know, succumbing to what was called at the time a nervous breakdown and retiring from performing with the group. You know, Brian had had birthed this whole Beach Boys thing from his own imagination. So uh, he was carrying an extraordinary burden way beyond that of any ordinary successful musician or band leader. And definitely that played out in terms of the relationship with his artwork, with the lack of support by the uh, on on the part of the group uh, as he made pet sounds and 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 broke all that new ground there. They would go, what's this, Brian? You know, uh, in fact, the first time he played the instrumental track for Good Vibrations to Carl, his brother, it was over the phone, mind you. Carl goes, geez, Brian, that sounds weird. I mean, that's that's the sort of level. I mean, it was just a constant battle for Brian. And so before, and, and, and Good Vibrations itself was an enormous hill to climb at eight months, $50,000, eight to 10 finished versions. I mean, it's just an amazing amount of effort and self-doubt and reassurance and all that, that Brian forward, back, forward, back, forward. <coughs> so at the end, he flies out to teach the group how to play the song live. And when he comes back, he has his wife bring all his friends to the airport and he takes this photograph that's in the book of him surrounded by all his buddies and the family and everybody at the LA airport. And he says to his wife, she says, isn't this what you want? And he says, yeah, I just don't know whether I should say hello to everybody or whether I should be saying goodbye. Wow. And that's the benediction because at that point, the curtain draws on Brian Wilson. He succumbs to mental illness, and he's never really himself again. And Good Vibrations remains his greatest achievement. And uh, speaking of great achievements, this book, Hollywood Eden, 
electric guitars, fast cars, and the myth of the California paradise. Joel Selvin, it's been a real treat to talk about this with you, and I hope we can have you back. I'd love to talk with you about Burt Burns or Altamont or any of the other books. Well, thank you. I'd love to do it and uh, appreciate uh, the good reading you did and, and, and all the good words. It's been fun. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate returns with Yuri Campbell for another installment of What Have We Learned, this time reviewing Ted Joya's Music, A Subversive History. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.